Acts chapter 20. Our study this morning is going to be in verses 20 and 29 primarily. I'd like to begin reading in verse 26 and verse 27, which we did study last time. But for contextual reasons, I want to, to read it again and then read down through verse 31 as our reading this morning. So verses 26 to 31 of Acts chapter 20. Again, let's read together and let's read aloud. Verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Shall we pray? Father, it is our heart's desire that you would speak to us through your word. That you will not only encourage, but exhort and even admonish us, Lord, that we may grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding of your word, especially of this passage of Scripture, as we will certainly take our time to understand it and know it as well as we can. We pray for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit. We ask for that outpouring today so that this very moment will be a time of, of learning and growing and even a time of refreshment as we realize, Lord God, that you are ever with us for you said you would not leave us nor forsake us. And this we thank you and bless you for. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Now, there might be some tree-hugging environmentalist dances with wolves sort of character who would want to argue this point with me. But those in that particular bend who say that wolves get a bad rap because of sayings and quips like, Keep the wolf from the door, which means to prevent hunger or poverty, or one that we're all familiar with, a wolf in sheep's clothing, a person who acts friendly but has evil intentions. Uh, I would say that they haven't really done their homework when it comes to wolves, and especially when it comes to wolves and their aversion to sheep. Now, an aversion is a strong dislike for something. And so wolves, for some reason, have a strong aversion or dislike for sheep. Now, the wolves' bad reputation is not without foundation. Former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt once called the wolf the beast of waste and desolation. 
Now this statement was a result of observing the seemingly senseless slaughter of sheep by wolves. Why did they kill so much more than they could eat? This was contrary to the nature of predator and prey. Now, wolves vary their hunting techniques, of course. They hunt and they kill many different animals, such as deer and moose, caribou. They even kill birds and rabbits and sheep and even mice. But sheep are the only animals that wolves slaughter in apparent compulsion and in unnecessary numbers. Now, it's interesting that if, if, if you study this particular thing, you, you realize that uh, wolves, of course, are very deceptive and they hide as, as a sheep herd may be moving past them. If it's one or two, she, uh, two wolves or whatever, not usually in, in great number in their packs, but it could even be one that uh, trails a, a herd of sheep and jumps on a number of them, upwards of ten sheep, let's say, and always jumps on the sheep and bites on their backbone and then runs away. Eventually, as the sheep continue to move, those that were bitten on the backbone can't move too much anymore, leaving them behind the rest of the flock. Eventually, while the wolf is waiting, will come, and while there are ten sheep lying, they only pounce on one and eat the one and let the others die. Interesting, isn't it? They don't do this to any other animal but the sheep. And what makes this more compelling is that wolves are extremely intelligent hunters. They're not usually called marauders or seen as marauders. But there is simply something in sheep that causes the wolf's thirst for blood to explode into furious attacks. And it's quite interesting with what we have just learned. That Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail over it. And that Jesus and other spirit-inspired writers of the New Testament would call the church the flock of God. I want you to notice, if you will, what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, and verse 32. He says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. When he mentions flock, he's referring to them being sheep. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that he is the true shepherd of his flock, and that unlike a hireling who is, pay, who is paid to oversee the flock, he will not flee when danger comes, but he will protect the flock, even risking his own life for them. In John chapter 10, verses 10 through 15, Jesus says the thief does not come except to kill and to or to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I have come that, I, that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. And he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
And I know my sheep and I and, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus understood much better than we ever did the nature of sheep and the wolves. The Apostle Peter would also instruct those that God made under shepherds or pastors and overseers of Christ Jesus when he writes in 1 Peter 5 verses 2 through 4, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Out of all the animals in the animal kingdom, God inspired his church to be likened to sheep. And like real sheep, the flock of God has formidable enemies also. These enemies of the church are called different things, but when likened to the animal kingdom, they are referred to as ravenous wolves. And again, Jesus is the one who warns us of this in Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16, when he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And then he says in verse 16, You will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Now for three years, and nearly every day of those three years, the Apostle Paul stayed in Ephesus and taught the church the doctrines of the faith. The doctrines of the Christian faith, even to the point of tears. Teaching them with so much compassion and so much concern that they understand fully the whole counsel of God's Word. But as we studied last time, Paul would make this this powerfully profound statement to these elders. When he says, Wherefore I take you to record or to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I have held nothing back that you need from the Word of God. I have given it to you completely and totally. And why does he tell them this? Why does he say, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God? Why? Because you see, it was now up to them in Ephesus. It was now up to them to take God's Word that He had given to them and the doctrines that He had given to them of the church. In other words, the teachings of the church and of the Word of God to the church. It was now up to them. Paul had set the example. And what happened from now on in Ephesus was going to be their responsibility. Which brings us to what Paul says in verse 28. When he says, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And I want you to notice in that first phrase that that statement in in, in the order that it is given is very important. It is of utmost importance for us to understand 
that he says, take heed to yourselves first and foremost and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to this church, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Savage, ravenous wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up. So the problem isn't going to be just from outside. They're going to come inside the church. And he says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. Watch. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Let me give you a quick history of what happened to the church in Ephesus. This is kind of like saying, let's go to the end to see how, let's see what takes place. Let me give you a quick history of what happened to the church of Ephesus following Paul's exhortations to the Ephesian elders as he gives them these words in, in Miletus. Because in answer to the questions that we might have, what happened after Paul departed? Or, or did they heed the warnings enough to, to avoid being overtaken by savage wolves? Well, the scriptures themselves reveal that years later, false teaching had become a major problem in the church, in the church of Ephesus. And Paul would urge Timothy to slow the flow of erroneous doctrines being taught there. Take, for example, what Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. Immediately in the very first chapter, he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. For there were already some that were teaching other things than what, was, than what, what, what had been given by Paul to the church. That you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which causes disputes, rather than godly edification which is in faith. The godly edification, the godly building up of the people, comes from teaching the doctrines of the church, from the Word of God. The true teachings and the true doctrines of faith in Christ. And so it was obvious that the church in Ephesus was having problems with men among them, speaking perverse things. Anything that is not fully God's Word, anything that is not from God's Word, anything that cannot be substantiated by God's Word, is perverse, out of line with, impure from the Word of God, which is pure and right and holy. So it would be to this very same congregation many years later that the resurrected Christ would give warning through the Apostle John as John is receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ to give to the seven churches in Asia. And in, in, in Revelation chapter 2 verses 4 and 5, a, a specific letter given to the church in Ephesus, the very same church. And the, and the, uh, the message that is given to this church 
says, nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. He says, you know, I've, I've taken to, into consideration your labor, uh, your, your works and your labor. You guys are quite an organization now as a church. But I have this against you. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have left your first love. And then he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So the admonition to this particular church, the church of Ephesus, was, you have left your first love. Your love for Christ and your love for the Word of God. Your love for the first things that you learned. The things that you as a church had learned through the ministry of the Apostle Paul on a daily basis for three years as he gave his whole heart into their own hearts and into their own minds as he taught them the Word of God. They had fallen from that. They were still a church, but they were just an organization now. They were doing works. They were doing things. They were doing outward activities. But they were not in love with Christ and in love with His Word any longer. And obviously, they had fallen away from some of the truths because they had allowed people to come in speaking perverse things. The church had weakened. To the point of being charged by Jesus himself that if they did not repent, they would be removed from the lampstand of the seven churches. Now, did all of this happen at a moment's notice? Did it all happen just immediately? No, never does a thing like that happen immediately. It takes place gradually. Over a period of time, little by little. Think about it in your own lives whenever you have fallen or stumbled away from the Lord. It wasn't an immediate thing. It wasn't just all of a sudden you came to church, you were having such a great time worshiping the Lord and listening to the Word of God, and then the next day you decided to be somebody else. No. It was gradual. Little by little. You stop reading the Word. You stop reading the Scriptures. You stop doing devotions. You stop praying. You laid it aside. Other things became more important. You became distracted by the things of the world. You became distracted by the things that were drawing you away from the Lord. The world became more urgent to you than the urgency of being before God in prayer. And eventually, you stop coming to church. An interesting pattern. Some people have said it takes place in their churches. So I'm not saying this about you here. There's some people who get so excited about coming to a church, they go right straight to the front and they'll sit there for, for many weeks, many, 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 many months maybe. But as things become distracting to them, they may skip a, a, a service or two. Eventually they come back. And this is a pattern, I'm just saying, and a lot of pastors have noticed. When they come back, they don't come back to the front, they come back to about the middle. And they'll stay there for a little while, then, then they stop coming for a little while, and then you don't see them for a while. And I'm not speaking about anybody in particular, I'm just saying, this is a pattern. 
Then they come back, but they're not back in the middle. Now they're sitting near to the back. Some call it the back door syndrome, you know. As soon as they're all sitting in the back. Now, I know that you all are sitting in the back only because you're farsighted. You see me better from being back there. So this is not about you all. So I know that. And then, of course, the kids, the ones that have kids, they have to sit back there. You know, it's okay. Well, I understand why you're there. But it's those that are just working their way out to the point that when they finally go out, they never come back. It's happened. It happens. But it's a gradual thing, you see. It's not an immediate thing. It's a gradual thing. So this is where the wolf pounces on the sheep. So as Paul now is, is bringing his farewell message to a close by warning the leaders of the dangers they had to recognize and deal with if they were to protect and to lead the church, these truths become very real. Warren Wiersbe writes this. He says, never underestimate the great importance of the church. And folks, we need to listen to this. Never underestimate the great importance of the church. The church is important to God the Father because His name is on it. The church of God. It is important to the Son because He shed His blood for it. It is important to the Holy Spirit because He is calling and equipping people to minister to the church. It is a serious thing to be a spiritual leader in the church of the living God. But let me say that as I'm telling you this, this message isn't just for people who are leaders and just or wanting to be leaders. It is for each and every one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Because you see, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you may not be a so-called leader in, in a church. You may be a member of a congregation as you're a member of this church. But nonetheless, when you leave this place, you go to a home or you go to work. And, and wherever you are as a believer in Jesus Christ, in some way you will be a leader for Jesus Christ. So these words are not just for those who would want to be in ministry, you're already in ministry. This is what we've been trying to teach you from the very beginning of God's Word. We're all in ministry. And we are here to teach you the Word of God. Why? To equip you for that ministry. You may be the only Christian where you were. Guess what? You'll be a leader. You may be the only Christian in your home. Guess what? You're a leader to show them Christ. And to preach Christ to them. So, that's why this is important to you today. And so the first priority for anyone involved in this kind of spiritual leadership in the church is their own relationship with God. The first priority for anyone involved in spiritual leadership in the church is their own relationship with God. What does Paul say in verse 28? Take heed therefore unto yourselves. Take heed. That's the first thing he says. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. Effective ministry is not mere outward activity like the church that had become the church of Ephesus by the time that Jesus has to write them in the book of Revelation. Effective ministry is not mere outward activity. It is the overflow of a rich and deep relationship with God. If you take anything home with you, take this point home. No one is ready to face the pressures and responsibilities of ministry who is not right with God. 
No one is ready to face the pressures and responsibilities of ministry who is not right with God. Those pressures and responsibilities, not to mention the demands of setting the example, require that ministry leaders continually be on guard. Continually be on guard. Take, for example, what Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, verse 9. To his disciples, he says, but watch out for yourselves. But watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. Watch out for yourselves. Be on guard, he says. What about what he says in Luke chapter 21, verse 34? Jesus saying to his disciples, but take heed to yourselves. And this is even more important to us in our day and time. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. You all know what carousing is, right? I don't have to explain what carousing is. You all know what carousing is? Just go like this. Make me feel good. Maybe the next word will help you understand carousing. Carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come come on you unexpectedly. The day of the Lord. The day of judgment. Take heed to yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. The distractions, the diversions of this life. The wolves in sheep's clothing of this life. So the first step, the first step in watching out for or taking heed to yourself is this. Examine yourself. That's the first step. And Paul says it very clear. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. Examine yourself. Don't be going around examining everybody else first. Examine yourself first. Examine yourself. Now, I'm going to give you some homework here. I want you to go home and read 1 Timothy chapter 4. All of it. Read 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to begin with verse 16, which is the last verse of that chapter. And there in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, notice what Paul says to Timothy. He says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. I want you to notice how those words are put together in the same sentence. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. To the teaching of the Word of God. The importance of our life and the Word of God together. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now, to understand something here, does this mean that, he, that Paul is telling Timothy, if you do this, you, you know, this is part of your salvation uh, eternally? No, we're not dealing with his, his eternal salvation. That's already, that's already clear and sure. But he saves himself from the wolf that seeks to keep him from the calling that God has given him. From the distractions of this life, from the diversions of this life, from the temptations of this life. He says, continue, and then for in doing this you'll save both yourself. In your perseverance, you'll be saved. You're persevering and finishing well at the end. You'll save both yourself and those who hear you. So after a whole chapter of exhorting young Timothy, which is your homework, read all of chapter 4. Paul summed up, by what he, uh, summed up what he said by challenging Timothy 
to examine himself. Notice, to scrutinize his life and doctrine to make sure that both of those things honor God. That his life honors God and that his doctrine honors God. That his doctrine is right, that his doctrine is just, is true. It is the very doctrine of God's word. And his life. Not apart from his life, but and his life. His life and his doctrine are to both honor God. To do so was crucial to his own perseverance as well as to the salvation and perseverance of others. Now the same truth was expressed in a little different way, but it was expressed by the Apostle Paul to Timothy in his second letter. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Paul tells Timothy, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, being, of course, the, the, the uh, dishonorable things that are used, wood and clay, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So there is a vessel of honor that is used for the right things and good things. Take, for example, the vessels of honor in a home of that time, gold and silver vessels, were used primarily for eating and drinking. Any other vessels that was, that, that was not of honor was actually for, we put it this way, but it's dishonorable things. The cleansing of impure things in the home. The cleansing of, of, of that which, is, which has been uh, uh, unclean or even the body itself. Whatever vessels are used, you know, that, that wasn't, you know, it's, it's not to say it's a dishonorable thing to clean yourself. You know, that's, it's, it's just that the vessel themselves are used for that purpose. They have their purpose, but we want to be for a greater purpose. So Paul says you need to be a clean vessel of honor. So what, is, what God is saying to Timothy, God is calling him to holiness. God calls for a holiness that is, just, uh, that is not just outward, but inward as well. You know, when Jesus talked to the Pharisees, you know, he was talking about, you know, you keep the vessel on the outside clean, but the inside is totally unclean. And you use that outward vessel, you know, as, as, a, as a point of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of hypocrisy. The inside is, is, is full of, of uncleanness. So Paul had already declared in himself an outward virtue. Before his own, you know, an outward virtue before of his own salvation. Let me, let me make that clear again. Paul had already declared an outward virtue before his own salvation, before he became a Christian, in other words. He had declared an outward virtue, but he called it rubbish in comparison to true righteousness. So I want to kind of clarify that. Whatever he called as some outward virtue in his life before Jesus Christ, after Christ he calls it rubbish in comparison to what true righteousness is. So if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 3, we'll see that. And we'll see the importance of it in, in our text and in our lives. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Paul says this, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now you'll notice what he's calling this outward virtue. It's confidence in the flesh, not in the Lord. 
He says, circumcise the eighth day. Well, you know, he didn't have anything to do with that. He was only eight days old. That was part of their tradition. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And then he says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I was blameless. I did everything to keep the law, but everything was by the flesh. Confidence in the flesh. Outward virtues. His wanting to be righteous was an outward virtue. His persecuting the church was an outward virtue. His having zeal for what he believed in was an outward thing. And he then says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, in that respect, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And then he says... And count them as rubbish, rubbish being a a nice word for dung or manure, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And again, the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. Christ's righteousness. And that's the great difference here. When he understands what true righteousness is, it isn't in himself. It is in what Christ Jesus has done for us. And that same thought applies to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12 when he says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Not with fleshly wisdom outwardly, but by the grace of God, inwardly, and more abundantly towards you. So now he's making it very clear that the work is an inward work, not an outward thing, not an outward virtue. So that is, in essence, what we're dealing with when we deal with examining ourselves. To see that we, as vessels of God, honor God with our lives as well as with our doctrine. We cannot separate that. There are some people who say, I do wonderful things. I do glorious things. I'm great at what I do for the Lord. I may have a few different uh, things in the way that I see the Word of God. And, and you might see them differently too. And, you know, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, there's a lot of people who sacrifice on the outside. They, they do a lot of stuff on the outside to kind of make themselves look good. But you know what? If their doctrine is all wrong, their lives are all wrong, what, what good is it? Paul does not separate our lives from our doctrine. As a matter of fact, it's our doctrine that brings us to that place where we can live our lives right before God. So our doctrine has to be right. So once we examine ourselves, point one, this is easy today, just two points. Once we examine ourselves, point one, the next thing is take heed to all the flock of God. Now, you know that this is a very important kind of, uh, of order here. Examine yourself and then take heed to all the flock of God. What do they tell you when you get on an airplane? And you have children with you. As before you put the mask on a child, if the mask come down, put the mask on yourself first. Then you're ready to help them out. Examine yourself and then take heed to the flock of God. So verse 28 says that, Therefore take heed to yourselves, 
and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, one thing that we cannot forget is this, and this pertains to the last passage there in verse 28. One thing that we cannot forget is this, that the principle that the church belongs to God, that's what we can't forget. The principle that the church belongs to God because he purchased it with his own blood. We can't forget that. That the church belongs to God because he purchased it with his own blood. And by the way, this is a tremendous statement uh, for the deity of Christ. Purchased with his own blood. Who, who purchased it with his blood? Christ Jesus who came and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. But he says God is the church of God which he purchased. So there is a, a strong teaching here on the deity of Christ. But here, here's the truth of what he's saying. The, the truth is that the people in the flock of God, the people don't belong to the pastor. They belong to the Lord. The people don't belong to the pastor, they belong to the Lord. You don't belong to me. You belong to Jesus. If you belong to me in any way, I could tell you what to do. I could insist upon it. But I gotta share this I, I gotta share this little secret. I'm part of the flock too. I belong to him. We belong to the Lord. Now as long as people choose to remain under the care and the leadership of their pastor, then the pastor has a responsibility before God to feed the sheep, to feed the flock of God, and to lead them. But they never belong to Him. They never belong to Him. Now the Holy Spirit has sovereignly raised up overseers or under-shepherds who are responsible to shepherd the flocks of God. And the first responsibility in being a shepherd is feeding the flock. This was made clear by Jesus to Peter after the resurrection. I think one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture is found in John 21. And in verses 50 through 17, and I wish I had more time to just, I, I love this passage of Scripture. I love to explain what, what's happening, be, you know, what's happening between Peter and Jesus. Because remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. And, and Peter, in coming back to be among the disciples and with Jesus, was very much ashamed. As a matter of fact, he didn't show up with, with them for a while. It, it, it took time before he finally came back into the fold. Sounds like some of us sometimes. But this is what happened. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. It's the first thing he tells him. Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. By the way, do you know what, what tend, where the word tend comes from? It comes really from a, a little longer word. 
attend. When you attend to someone, you're attending to their needs, so you are caring for them. So he says to Peter, tend my sheep. In other words, attend to their needs. Part of that, if not the most important part of it, is to feed them properly the things of God. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And now Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And we learn from this particular passage what great value there is in the Lord's flock. What great value God holds for His sheep. When He says to Peter, feed them. Tend to their needs and feed them. You know, there's one reason why He is called upon, why the Lord is called upon by the psalmist to remember the flock that He's purchased. When the psalmist was in dire straits, In Psalm 74, verse 2, he says, Remember your congregation. The psalmist is saying to the Lord, Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old. The tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed. I don't think we have to always remind the Lord, but we do so because we want Him to hear our cries and say, Lord, remember us. Remember your congregation. You purchased us of old. We are His purchased possession. And the price was high. The body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, what we're remembering today, price was high. Behold the Lamb of God, behold Him who taketh away the sins of the world. What great value. And so the church must be fed the Word of God. And it must be fed the Word of God for these reasons. And I'm going to give you these reasons very quickly here because they're in our text today from verses 28 to 31. The church of God must, uh, I should say, the church of God must be fed the Word of God for these reasons. Number one, because God purchased the church and paid the supreme price for it. The church of God must be fed the Word of God because it is the duty of of church leaders to feed it. The church of God must be fed the Word of God because false teachers will inevitably come in among believers and seduce them. So the Word of God has to be taught. The church of God must be fed the Word of God. And here's an interesting reason. Because Paul's supreme example of faithfulness is before us. Because Paul's supreme example of faithfulness is given to us. Paul warned them, it says, night and day with tears, night and day full of compassion, night and day full of concern, that they not be caught unawares by false brethren, by ravenous wolves, by false prophets of any kind. What an awesome and humbling responsibility that is. 
to feed the, the, the flock of God, the Word of God. But the Holy Spirit will always empower you for the work that He's called you to do. So this is one of the, the, this is one of the things that, that we need to rejoice in. God will always empower us for the work that He's called us to do. But it isn't enough to feed. The shepherd is also to protect. And it brings us back to those wolves. Look at verse 29, because Paul even calls them that. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So he's making it very clear to the Ephesian elders, listen, you need to be awake and aware and, and vigilant about doing exactly what I've done with you for three, for three years, preaching and teaching the Word of God. Because in doing that, I am not only feeding you, I am protecting you. And it brings to mind again what we read earlier, but, but this is just a little before what we read in John chapter 10. Because in verse 7, Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the, but the sheep did, did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And there is some sense that we give our lives to you because we are not going to compromise God's word in presenting it to you. That's the way it has to be. There's no other way to be. There's no other thing to do. People may want all kinds of stuff here. I have one mission in mind. That is to feed you the Word of God. And in feeding you, to protect you. By awakening you to the strength of God's Word and God's Spirit and God's power that is made available to you if you only believe and trust in the Lord. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3 through says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Well, that's already happened. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And I can tell you this, anytime somebody says to you, listen, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe that we can actually get to the Lord in, in, in many different other ways. And we ought to respect all the other religions and certainly, you know, well, you know, we can have Jesus and maybe, maybe look into some of the, some of the tenets of, of, of Buddhism or, or, you know, Hinduism or whatever, you know, because there's so many ways to God. That person is denying the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So what do we do with that? It's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus alone. Even denying the Lord who bought them. Some people think, you know, that they, they, you know we're, we're, we're more sophisticated than those Christians who just like to read and study the Bible. We've gone a little beyond that now. We're having conversations with people. We, con- we converse with a lot of people nowadays. Because there's so many different ways now we, we don't even understand salvation well you don't understand because you're blind Jesus said these little children understand because this is what the kingdom's all about 
So those under-shepherds who truly value the church will shepherd their flocks by feeding them the Word of God and faithfully leading them. So will we deeply consider doing the same? Will we consider doing the same? I want you to examine yourselves today as we come to the Lord's table. I want you to heed the words of the Apostle Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you're disqualified, but I trust that you will know that you are not, that we are not disqualified. I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. So that's the encouragement here. Examine yourselves. Take the bread and the cup today and examine yourselves. Take the bread and the cup and, and, and please take it because it's for sinners. It's for us to remember that. And if there's anything that in your heart or in your mind you know, seems to be like a stumbling block right now, where you are, say, Lord Jesus, take that away because I want to remember what Jesus did for me. Don't let that get in the way, Lord, of the joy that I want to have in receiving this communion with my brothers and sisters in Christ and this communion with you. Let's pray.